0: Gentlemen, introducing the Ball and Mitt Podcast, a willy-nilly talk show about baseball life and the occasional knee slapper. So grab your Cracker jack, sit back and relax. It's gonna be a doozy. Here's your host, the Bees Bees himself. Baseball fans, welcome to episode one of season two of the Balmett podcast. It has been about two months, I think. My last episode of last year was before Christmas, maybe December 15th, 16th, something like that. And I had to take a little break. One, because I didn't think there was enough going on. You guys don't want to hear about all the rumors of who's being traded. Every day there was a new rumor coming up. Hey, Manny Machado is rumored to be talking to The Fayetteville Woodpeckers, or you know, Bryce Harper's rumored to be going to—I don't know—the Trash Pandas. Like it was, it was just silliness after silliness, and I don't really think anybody knew what was going on except for a couple people. And we'll talk a little bit about those trades here in a bit. But I actually, surprise, had to relocate back to Raleigh, North Carolina. Denver was awesome. It was difficult to leave. Uh, There's just some circumstances that were outside of my control. I don't regret it. Sometimes, you know, when you want to do something, you just have to take a calculated risk, and I loved being out there, and I was a little conflicted, because usually when you leave a location, it's because you didn't enjoy it, or there's something about it that you didn't like, and that was not the case for Denver. So I'm back on the East Coast watching baseball games or sports games that start at 9 o'clock at night, so that's one thing I, I do miss. So I'm here. I'm back in Raleigh. I was starting off, kickstarting a new career, hopefully soon, so you don't hear about that, but that's been the reason why I've been kind of absent, along with not a ton happening in baseball, in my opinion. So I had to get the moving truck, uh, pay someone to load it up, and drive back from Denver to Raleigh, and everything was in storage until I found a place. So uh, I have an excuse for why I haven't heard from me. I've tried to be active on Twitter, uh, but now we're starting Ball Mitt Podcast back up again. This is, like I said, the beginning. This is the premier episode of season two, and so with that being said, let's go ahead and uh, get into some hardball headlines. Now, according to ESPN, there are now mannequins in Washington—a different type of manny. So this year, a Washington's spring training wardrobe. This again, according to ESPN.com, uh, they—they're—they're they're already more varied than most teams, but they expanded to three more caps, jerseys, and two pairs of pants. So in other words, any given day there are eight. 15 different combinations that could be in play. All right, so that's just the, that's not where the mannequin part comes in yet. That's just the uniforms. So one Nationals clubhouse attendant, inspired by a 2015 image of mannequins modeling Arizona Diamondbacks new uniforms, decided that a dummy was the smart move. So what they did was they packed up the truck, head out to spring training, and they also brought a mannequin. Now I'm wondering whose job is it to carry the mannequin? Maybe it's the rookie's you know, got a rookie hazing, that type of thing. Uh, But what they do is they have this mannequin, and before they go out to a game, or whatever they're supposed to wear that that day, they put the outfit, the uniform, and all of its matching stuff, and they put that design on the mannequin so that when the players come in, they know exactly what hat to wear with what jersey to wear with what pants. And it's thrown up on the mannequin. Uh, Sean Doolittle says this, just because we're professional athletes doesn't mean we don't need somebody telling us what to wear to work every day. Now, this was very creative. I thought it was it was pretty neat. Now, when I look at a mannequin when I go shopping, which is rarely, I don't like doing it, I look at the outfit, I'm like, you know what, that looks really good. Maybe that would look really good on me. And then I remember, the mannequin has something that I don't. 0% body fat, amongst other things. I, ha- I have maybe a little more of a tan than he does, But, uh, yeah, it never looks as good on me as it does the mannequin. So, kudos to this uh, clubhouse attendant for uh, being creative with fashion in the clubhouse. Now, recently, first baseman, uh, Danielle Gibson for Arkansas softball team, has gone for the cycle in regard to home runs. So, she has a a solo shot, a two-run home run, a three-run shot, and a grand slam, all in the same game. Now, there's been some other softball players who have had four home runs in one game but she is the second Division 1 softball player to hit for the home run cycle and she only needed to do it in the first four innings so Georgetown's Ali Atilla I probably butchered that I apologize is the only other person to accomplish this feat and she did it against Rutgers uh, April 6, 2013 and the only other baseball player to do uh, hit for the home run cycle is Tyrone Horn. And he did this as a member of the Arkansas Travelers of the Class AA Texas League in 1998. Now, you all know this. And a lot of times I bring up these things in the show because I want to add a little bit of commentary to it. Or maybe it's some information that was kind of hidden away that's not really in the public eye. But this is is pretty noticeable. I believe the guys at Belly Up Sports, uh, the latest uh, podcast that they have created, actually is interviewing uh, Daniel Gibson on this feed. So that was awesome. What I wanted to bring up is there are actually people out there trying to downgrade this accomplishment for for, for two, two reasons they're downplaying. One, uh, I read an article that said, and it might have even been the Washington Post article, that there was a little bit of luck involved because she cannot control how many people are on base. But that's that has nothing to do with the outcome that she brought about. She hit a home run with runners in scoring position. Like, that's just that's just a dumb argument. That's not luck. I mean, how many times, like I said, four softball players, it, at least, have hit four home runs in the same game. That's a, that's an awesome feat altogether. And you're going to say she's lucky because it was the home run uh, cycle. Eh, whatever. The other one, it, that, the other reason or, or way that they're downgrading us is because of who they were playing. The team that they were playing, which I I believe was the Southern Illinois Edwardsville. So that's that's like... I don't even know if that's a junior. That's like junior college level, maybe even worse. I, I don't know. I don't care who you're playing. You still have to make contact and hit the ball over the fence four times. Awesome feat. Congratulations to her. She's going to go down in history. Harper, Machado, and Arenado all got contracts. Nolan Arenado, his was he got an extension. Okay, so that's a little different. Eight years, 260 million. Uh, Machado with the Padres, 10 years, 300 million, and he has an opt-out clause. I think it year five, maybe four. I think it's five. And then Bryce Harper recently with the Phillies, 13 years, 330 million, and he's going to bring a title back to DC while playing in Philly. (laughs) I thought that was awesome. Uh, The cool thing about Harper, though, I I don't, there's been arguments. I I read an article on Fangraphs. I was trying to explain who got the better deal. I don't care. We're getting paid millions to play a game they love. End of story. Like, we won't be able to tell who got the biggest bang for the buck until we see how they... Perform during the whole tenure of their agreements, and so I was trying to read some little FanGraph, FanGraph that was going through all these details and look at this and look at that, and my brain exploded. So I stopped reading it. Either way, someone asked me this on Twitter: What do I think Trout will get? I said Trout will get 400 million. I don't know how many years. I don't think 15 years, uh, maybe 13 years, but he'll get 400 million. I'ma hold to that, and if not, I'll buy every single one of my followers a slap bracelet. Yeah, All right. That's on. What's funny is with Bryce Harper, not only was the uh, district donuts offered him district donuts in Washington, offered him donuts for life. If he signed back with them, but also smash mouth on Twitter said, we are hearing giants ownership or upper management might not be on the same page regarding signing Harper. They want to offer a long-term contract like they did with bonds. And I believe uh, their, their owner does not want to. So, Smashmouth is like, you know what? Step up. This is your team, not some slappies from the Dodgers. And none of those came true. Bryce did not go to Giants Giants. I'm having a hard time talking today. He did not go to Washington. He went to Philadelphia. So you guys can take those donuts and smash them into your own mouth. See what I did there? Alright. Angels recently got out of a contract about their concerning their stadium. So this is according to NBC Sports. The Los Angeles Angels opted out of their long-term lease with the city of Anaheim for Angel Stadium recently, extending the short-term agreement with the city through 2020, and are in the process of trying to come up with some sort of plan to either renovate the old place or to build a new stadium for the team in Anaheim. Now they're listening to a competing pitch from a city a few miles away. That city? Long Beach. Here's Here's a quote. The LA Angels of Anaheim are in talks with the city about the possibility of moving the team to Long Beach and building a new stadium on a downtown waterfront lot. Several sources familiar with discussions told the Post. Significant details are not yet clear, such as the cost of the proposed stadium and who would pay for it. (laughs) Someone's got to pay for it. Many layers of approval would also be required. So, I don't know, maybe they're going to be the Long Beach surfers? or the the Angels of Long Beach that used to be in Anaheim. I mean, that's a really long name. Imagine that on a logo. So there you have it. I thought that was interesting. Uh, one thing I thought was really cool was they're thinking about putting it at a downtown waterfront, and we've seen that proposal, uh, I think, for either the Oakland Athletic Stadium or a team going to Portland. Their proposal, or their little model that they create about also being near a waterfront and having you know, the, the stadium opened up through center field so that the view is awesome. So, I don't know. Maybe this is a trend. Who knows? But with that, let's get into our main topic about this pitch clock implementation. I know one of my first episodes was the pace of play rules, and this might have been brought up a little bit, but I, I did we didn't focus on it much because it was more theoretical and it was in the middle of the season. So here we go. I'm going to go through, assume that all of my information I'm getting is not something I created. So I'm going to try to remember to say who actually is reporting this. And if I do, I apologize because these rules for the pitch clock, they're being reported everywhere. So I I don't want to claim ownership for any of this, but hopefully I don't forget, you know, where I got this from. That's why I try to quote everybody. I don't want to misinform or, you know, I don't want to look like I'm not doing my work because I'm trying to do my research the best that I can. So, there you have it. According to Baseball America, what we're going to do is we're going to go over kind of how they're using the pitch clock in spring training, what the rules are going to uh, gonna be, or how they're going to be enforced, the different caveats. And then I want to go from there about talking. You, Buster Olney has brought up an idea, and then us thinking about, well, how does this affect the batters? But then also, uh, one of the last things I want to talk about for a little bit is, is the pitch clock even the solution? or Is it the time in between pitches? Is that the problem even? Or do we have another problem? And then I'll go from there and we'll wrap it up with some some juicy news. Okay, so here's the pitch clock implementation. A 20-second pitch clock will operate without enforcement in the first spring training games to get players and umpires comfortable with ignoring it. I mean, with the clock. Umpires will issue reminders to hitters and pitchers who violate the rule, but no ball strike penalties will be assessed. Third, Later in spring training, umpires will be instructed to issue ball strike penalties to violators pending negotiations with the Major League Baseball Players Association. So that's kind of the the three steps that are being implemented to get people used to this horrific thing called a pitch clock. Other caveats to the rule are as follows pitch clock timer only starts after the first pitch of the at bat. Number two. The clock starts once the pitcher has the ball in the dirt circle around the pitching rubber and the catcher is in the box. Number three, before the 20 seconds are up, the pitcher must begin his windup or motion to come set. The pitch itself doesn't have to be thrown before the 20 seconds are up. Any pickoff attempt, number four, any pickoff attempt, wild pitch, or pass ball would reset the timer, as would even feigning a pickoff throw or stepping off the mound. Five, the timer won't be used on the first immediate pitch after a foul ball, a dead ball, or a mound mound visit. Number six, the timer won't be used on the first pitch after time is called, though if time was called solely for purposes of resetting the clock or changing a baseball, the timer shall start on the umpire's signal. So let's go ahead and and implement a silly rule and then have sub-rules to that. Does that make sense? That's not convoluted. Now, Manfred can make an executive decision on this if he wants to but he prefers to come to an agreement with the Players Association. Rule 5.07C in the MLB rulebook already stipulates that the pitcher must deliver a pitch within 12 seconds of receiving the ball when there are no runners on base. However, that rule also states that those 12 seconds begin only when the pitcher is in the possession of the ball and the batter is in the box alert to the pitcher. So I, I wanted to mention that other rule because that's not even being implemented. It's just because it's in the rule book, doesn't mean it's actually being enforced. There's a lot of stuff in the rule book that isn't enforced or people don't even know about. Mentioning this preexistent pitch clock, quote unquote, and the fact that it's not even being used, it, it it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. It just means that okay, you have the actual physical clock up there, but does that mean it's still going to be used and implemented? I don't think it's going to be. I don't care what you put up there. What we're seeing here is a couple things. When there's a pickoff attempt, wild pitch, pass ball would reset the timer, even when you fake a pickoff or you step off the mound. Is there going to be a penalty if a pitcher steps off the mound too often? Because there's been times where a pitcher and catcher can't get on the same page and he steps off the mound. They get to start the 20 seconds over again. So it's, it's almost like the 20 second clock didn't even exist. They're trying to control every bit of the game without controlling it. It's weird. It's, they've implemented all these different criteria, but then there are also so many different times where the timer doesn't reset, or there isn't one, because be, the timer won't be used on the first immediate pitch after a foul ball, a dead ball, or a mound visit. There are a ton of foul balls nowadays. A dead ball. What, what constitutes a dead ball? I mean, I do know what constitutes a dead ball, but how often th- does that happen? And now we have you know a limited amount of mound visits, but there are even exceptions to those mound visits. So wh- what I see here, is an exception after exception after exception. When there are so many exceptions to the rule, a rule no longer exists. I really think what's going to happen is Players Association is not going to be on board, and Manfred's going to go ahead and make an executive order, implement this anyway. Okay, So so that's kind of what's going on with this pitch. I think everybody knows this. I think a lot of people are like, this is silly. Others are like, no, this works. No one's going to be affected. Here's an interesting fact. Last year, the average game took three hours, which was five minutes shorter than in 2017. Now, is that to be attributed to some of these nonsense rule changes? I don't think that can be demonstrated or proven, at least not in this short amount of time. Whenever they say, hey, we've made some changes, and games are now five minutes shorter. Okay, awesome, great. You can practice the rule of averages. That doesn't say, hey, that thing that we implemented before this shorter season worked. I'm sorry. You're fishing for something that's not there. Now let's let's pause—not pause, but just remind you that the pitcher isn't the only one affected by the pitch clock. Okay, so the batter needs to be fully in the box with five seconds remaining. Now this lends itself to the topic brought up by Travis Salshick, butchering that one too, a FanGraphs alumni of something he's calling icing the pitcher. So here are kind of some points: Does the batter wait? until five seconds to step into the box. Therefore, having the pitcher wait, even if, if he's ready. Now, I know you're supposed to have one foot in the batter's box. Again, something not enforced, but let's say you would just keep one foot in the batter's box and put the second one in there at five seconds. Another thing is, when a rule is implemented, like the pitch clock, and it's dim- you, you, you people can follow how long it's taking to throw the pitch, it's now documented. When you document something, there can therefore be loopholes. If you don't put something into practice, if there's not something that is said somewhere that this is how it is, then you can't find loopholes because there's no proof that that's how it's really supposed to be. But as soon as you institute something, people start looking for loopholes. Now, we have the NFL and the NBA, and we do some icing there. Uh, We ice the kicker. Uh, We ice the shooter. Now, this Fangraph article said that there's no real proof that icing the kicker or icing the shooter actually works. Okay, that's fine. But this is different. You know, when you're shooting a free throw, people are waiting around for something to happen. It's you and the goal. When you ice the kicker, you know, your players are waiting for you to hike it. It's you kicking the ball. In baseball, there's a chess match going on between batter and pitcher. And they're both, I guess, alive at any time. In NBA, the ball's not live at that moment when they're shooting the free throw. It's not live until maybe... There's a, a penalty or the ball is high. Like I'm doing a bad job explaining this, but I, I think this icing with MLB would be different just because of who is going up against who. It's, it's more individual against individual than it is team against team or in the NBA player against a basket. So I think it's slightly different. Now, with freezing the pitcher, well, this calls the pitcher to step off. It's like, okay, the batter, he's waiting to step in with five seconds left. I'm tired of waiting, so I'm going to step off. So does this essentially make games longer? I mean, you already see this now. You got batters asking for time, and then he gets set, and the pitcher steps off the mound. And I know it doesn't happen a ton, but now that we have this rule documented, and, and now we live in an era where not only the managers, but players are looking for the upper hand and being very strategic, I think this gets exploited. I really do. I think this gets exploited. So the pitch clock doesn't only affect the pitcher, and the pace of the game, I don't think it's going to correct the pace of the game. I really think it's, I think it's going to make it, I don't know, I don't think it's going to solve the problem that that there is. The the problem that we have, pace of play, the pitch clock doesn't solve that. It's not the answer. I, I personally don't think there's a problem with the pace of play. I love it, but we're, we're trying to appease a, a new generation, new crowds. so something has to be done. I get it. You, the game has to evolve but it's just like, where does it evolve? That, that's kind of the tricky part. And now we've seen all the batter is affected and how the pitch clock affects them and then how their actions affect the pitcher and then the pitcher back to the, the batter. So it's all this back and forth, cat and mouse loophole type of stuff. It's like a smorgasbord or a, a potluck of baseball stuff. But I'm not done. Buster Olney, who I usually appreciate for his out-of-the-box thinking, he may just need to rein it in a bit. Here's an excerpt from an article that he wrote And I quote, Okay, in 1920, Major League Baseball made a rule against the spitball and against foreign substances with one caveat. The pitchers already in the big leagues who relied on the spitball could continue to do so. Spitballer Burley Grimes had made his debut in 1916 and was able to continue deploying the pitch through the end of his career in 1934. I continue. Similarly, in 1970, MLB instituted a rule requiring hitters to wear helmets, but this also had a grandfather addendum. Any veteran who was already in the majors at the time the rule was put in place had the right to wear a cap instead of a helmet. In 1979, Red Sox catcher Bob Montgomery was the last player to bat without the protective headgear, end quote. Do you guys see where he's going with this? I'll continue. Now, Max Scherzer has been pretty adamant about his disdain for the pitch clock, saying things such as having a pitch clock, that's just messing with the fabric of the game. And there's no clock in baseball, and there's no clock in baseball for a reason. So the issue that comes to my mind is the veterans are feeling like Manfred is forcing change like a hammer, to use only these words. Just hammering it into them. Change, change. So what does Buster suggest? Well, you asked for it. Here's a quote. So it might be good for Manfred to soften the impact of the pitch clock and stay in the box rules. Make them apply to players who arrived in the big leagues after 2015. The others can be allowed to play at their own pace through the end of their respective careers. What? I understand the grandfathering rule, but its connotation is a bit insulting when it literally applied to people, in my opinion. Okay, let me explain that. It's not like being grandfathered into a mobile plan or a change in any type of service or technology. Okay, being grandfathered into, oh, I had free texting and you're changing that, but because I'm grandfathered in, I can still get my free texting. That's more of a service, but this is different. When you're grandfathering in somebody who's an actual person, I think it's kind of negative. Again, here's, here's a quote from Olney. It might be that the accelerated pace of the younger pitchers and hitters pushed by the pitch clock will nudge the veterans into unconsciously speeding up their play. Or maybe it won't. But either way, the games will gradually move along at a faster clip as more and more youngsters accustomed to the pitch clock are promoted and the older players graduate into retirement. Pretty much appease the old guys until they're no longer a part of baseball. So eventually they're going to fade away and we'll forget them, they'll forget us, and everything will be right with the world. Sometimes I wonder the people who write things about baseball even enjoy the game. I really do. And again, this is over generalization, but I just didn't like this. So he says that everybody will get over it and move on like the home plate collisions and the slide rules. Um, I don't think anyone is over those. They still change outcomes. Managers are still getting thrown out of games because there's no way to interpret these, these rules that people aren't over yet. Like This isn't that simple. Having two sets of rules for a temporary period of time, I don't care how short, is utter nonsense. The definition of that word means it makes no sense. Stop with all this tinkering every year by adding more and more rules that no one is going to enforce anyway. Just stop it. There are already so many rules in the MLB guidelines that are either ignored, up for interpretation, or not even known about by the majority of people on planet Earth. I vote we start taking rules out, honestly. Clean it up a bit. Listen to this. According to Reader's Digest, I got four interesting facts for you. In Connecticut, a pickle cannot be sold unless it bounces. According to a 1948 article, this law became a necessity after two scheming pickle packers tried to sell pickles unfit for human consumption. Connecticut's Food and Drug Commissioner at the time proclaimed that a real pickle should bounce when dropped from the height of one foot, leading to a new state regulation. And Georgia, for chicken chompers in Gainesville, finger licking is not a suggestion. It is mandatory. Thanks to a 1961 law added to the city code as a publicity stunt, it is illegal to eat fried chicken in the poultry capital of the world with anything other than your fingers. A tourist was arrested for such a chicken forking violation in 2009, just 10 years ago. And Iowa, I can't believe it's not a misdemeanor. Any person who attempts to pass off margarine as real butter is guilty of a simple misdemeanor in the state of Iowa, punishable by up to 30 days in jail and a $625 fine. In Maryland, making road rage even ragier, it is illegal to swear or curse upon any street or highway in Rockville, Maryland. Anyone caught swearing faces a misdemeanor charge, effectively having to add $100 to the city swear jar. I've driven in Maryland. I've seen how people have their road rage. If that was the case, we'd have enough money and this city swear jar to buy a decent baseball team. Now, I bring up those stupid, silly rules because they're silly. They're dumb. They're antiquated. And I think there are a lot of rules in MLB rulebook that also need to be just obliterated, set on fire. But instead... We're actually adding more of these nonsense rules to the rule book because we want to fix a big problem really quick. And then we just hope people forget about it. I don't, I don't think a pitch clock solves the problem. And I even mentioned earlier, I don't even know if we've got a problem with the pace of play. As far as the branding of the league, yeah. But I did read this article on uh, Axios Sports posted by a friend of mine. The short column believes that baseball may in fact have a foul ball problem. So let me give you some some partial quotes here. Over the last 20 years, the number of foul balls has increased by 11.98%. To put it another way, there were almost 14,000 more foul balls in 2018 than there was in 1998. Things have gotten so out of hand that there were actually more foul balls than balls put in play in each of the past two seasons. There were 26,313 more pitches thrown in 2018 than in 1998, which is the equivalent of adding 88 games to the schedule and roughly half of that growth can be attributed to foul balls. So what's happening? Pitching keeps improving. Pitching velocity and breaking ball usage continue to increase, and the game is more specialized than ever. The result? Tougher at bats and, in turn, more wasted pitches. The fields are shrinking. Okay, Fangraphs compared 21 current stadiums with their predecessors and found that foul territory had decreased by a whopping 20.5%. Bottom line, again, according to Axios Sports, Shockingly, a pitch clock might not be the answer to baseball's pace of play problem. I thought that was a very interesting article. Just think about it. Uh, you know, hopefully, it could generate some some great discussions on Twitter, um, or email or, or whatever. There's problems in every sport, but I think we're tackling the wrong one and instigating the the, the, the quick fixes. I, I just I want us to think a little more about this. This is America's pastime. It's our treasured game. It, it requires more thought instead of just adding something temporarily and then taking it away or not even enforcing it. I just, I think it's inconsequential. Now, that's all I've got for you today, except for one juicy bit of news. According to today.com, The Sandlot will return as a TV series with the original cast members. Writer-director David Mickey Evans said on the Rain Delay podcast that the TV series, which will run on an unnamed streaming service will bring back Smalls, Ham, Yeah Yeah, and the gang, but this time as adults in the 1980s. He says, I already got all the original cast members back. It takes place in 1984 when they're all about 33 years old and they all have children of their own, and that's all I can tell you. As if all this wasn't great news enough, a prequel to the hit film is currently in development. Have an awesome week. I'm out. See ya! Well, folks, that's a wrap. This has been a Ball and Mint podcast production. Take a gander at our website and remember to follow us on Twitter and subscribe to the show. Thank you for tuning in. Farewell, baseball fans.